This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This is a long passage from Mary Pfeiffer's 1994 book, Reviving Ophelia. Uh, even though uh, Pfeiffer and her daughter uh, published a revised and updated version of this book last year, uh, the stories that she tells in the original book, uh, which involve the lives of teenage girls in the 1990s, is well worth reading on its own now as a kind of time capsule of what life was like then and how much uh, it has changed since then. And in this passage, that's what uh, Pfeiffer is doing herself. She is recalling her own life, her own childhood, and her own teenage years with a teenager from the 1990s. And she writes this. Cassie attends a high school with 2,300 students. She doesn't know her teachers, children, or her neighbors' cousins. When she meets people, she doesn't try to establish their place in a complicated kinship network. When she shops for jeans, she doesn't expect the clerk to ask after her family. Cassie sees her extended family infrequently, particularly since her parents' divorce. They are scattered all over the map. Most of the adults in her neighborhood work. In the evening, people no longer sit on their front porches. Instead, they prefer the privacy of backyard patios, which keep their doings invisible. Air conditioning contributes to each family's isolation. On hot summer days and nights, people go inside to stay cool. Cassie knows the Cosby family and the people from Northern Exposure better than she knows anyone on her block. Cassie fights with her parents in a more aggressive way than the teens of my youth. She yells, swears, accuses, and threatens to run away. Her parents tolerate this open anger much more readily than earlier generations would. I'm confused about whether I was more repressed as a child or just happier. Sometimes I think all this expression of emotion is good, and sometimes, particularly when I see beleaguered mothers, I wonder if we have made progress. Cassie is much more politically aware of the world than I was. By the time she was 10, she'd been in a protest march in Washington, D.C. She's demonstrated against the death penalty and the Rodney King trial. She writes letters to her congressman and to the newspapers. She writes letters for Amnesty International to stop torture all over the world. She is part of a larger world than I was and takes her role as an active participant seriously. Cassie and her friends 
all tried smoking cigarettes in junior high. Like most teenagers today, Cassie was offered drugs in junior high. She can name more kinds of illegal drugs than the average junkie from the 50s. She knows about local drug-related killings and crack rings. Marijuana, which my father saw once in his lifetime, wafts through the air at her rock concerts and midnight movies. Alcohol is omnipresent in bowling alleys, gas stations, grocery stores, skating rinks, and the laundromats. Alcohol advertising is rampant, and drinking is associated with wealth, travel, romance, and fun. At 16, Cassie has friends who have been through treatment for drugs or alcohol. The schools attempt alcohol and drug education, but they are no match for the peer pressure to consume. Cassie knows some just-say-no leaders who get drunk every weekend. By eighth grade, kids who aren't drinking are labeled geeks and left out of the popular scene. Spending money is a pastime. Cassie wants expensive items, a computer, a racing bike, and trips to Costa Rica with her Spanish class and to the ski slopes of Colorado. She takes violin and voice lessons from university professors and attends special camps for musicians. Cassie has been surrounded by media since birth. Her family owns a VCR, a stereo system, two color televisions, and six radios. Cassie wakes to a radio, plays the car stereo on the way to school, sees videos at school, and returns home to a choice of stereo, radio, television, or video cassettes. She can choose between 40 channels 24 hours a day. She plays music while she studies and communicates via computer modem with hackers all over the country in her spare time. Cassie and her friends have been inundated with advertising since birth and are sophisticated about brand names and commercials. While most of her friends can't identify our state flower, the goldenrod, and a ditch along the highway, they can shout out the brand of a can of soda from 100 yards away. They can sing commercial jingles endlessly. Cassie's been exposed to years of sophisticated advertising in which she has heard that happiness comes from consuming the right products. She can catch the small lies and knows that adults tell lies to make money. We do not consider that a sin. We call it marketing. But I'm not sure that she catches the big lie, which is that consumer goods are essential to happiness. Cassie has more access to books than I had. I was limited to a town library the size of a quick stop and a weekly bookmobile. She has a six-branch public library system, a school library as big as a gymnasium, and three university libraries. But she reads much less than I did particularly the classics that I loved, Jane Eyre, Moby Dick, Return of the Native, bore her with their loopy, ornamental prose. She has more choices about how to spend her time, and like most teens raised in a media-saturated culture, Cassie does not often choose to read books. There are more magazines for, for girls now, but they are relatively unchanged in the 30 years since I bought my copies of Teen. The content for girls is makeup, acne products, fashion, thinness, and attracting boys. 
Some of the headlines could be the same. True Colors Quiz. Get the look that gets boys. Ten Commandments of Hair. The Best Places to Meet Available Men. And Ten Ways to Trim Down. Some headlines are updated to pay lip service to the themes of the 1990s. Two models chill out at Oxford University in season's greatest gray clothes, or eco-inspired looks for all. A few reflect the greater stress that the 1990s offer the young. Rev up your looks when stress has you down. The STD of the month. Genital warts and should I get tested for AIDS? Some would never have appeared in the 1950s. When you're highly sexed, is one partner enough? And advice on orgasms. Cassie listens to music by the Dead Milkmen, 10,000 Maniacs, Nirvana, and They Might Be Giants. She dances to Madonna's song Erotica with its sadomasochistic lyrics. The rock and roll lyrics by Two Live Crew that make Tipper Gore cringe don't upset her. Sexist lyrics and the marketing of products with young women's naked bodies are part of the wallpaper of her life. Cassie's favorite movies are The Crying Game, Harold and Maude, and My Own Private Idaho. None of these movies would have made it past our theater owner of my hometown. Our culture has changed from one in which it was hard to get information about sexuality to one in which it's impossible to escape information about sexuality. Inhibition has quit the scene. In the 1950s, a married couple on TV had to be shown sleeping in twin beds because a double bed was too suggestive. Now anything, incest, menstruation, crotch itch, or vaginal odors can be discussed on TV. Television shows invite couples to sell their most private moments for a dishwasher. The plot for romance movies is different. In the 50s, people met, argued, fell in love, then kissed. By the 70s, people met, argued, fell in love, and then had sex. In the 90s, people meet, have sex, argue, and then, maybe, fall in love. Hollywood lovers don't discuss birth control, past sexual encounters, or how a sexual experience will affect the involved parties. They just do it. The Hollywood model of sexual behavior couldn't be more harmful and misleading if it were trying to be. Cassie has seen playboys and penthouses on the racks at the local drugstores and quick stops. Our city has an adult triple X-rated movie theater and adult bookstore. She's watched the adult channels and hotel rooms while bouncing on magic finger beds. Advertisements that disturb me with their sexual content don't bother her. When I told her that I first heard the word orgasm when I was 20, she looked at me with disbelief. Cassie's world is more tolerant and open about sex. Her friends produced a campy play entitled Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. For a joke, she displays Kiss of Mint condoms in her room. She's a member of her school's branch of flag, Friends of Lesbians and Gays, which she joined after one of her male friends came out to her. She is non-judgmental about sexual orientation and outspoken in her defense of gay rights. Her world is a kinder, gentler place for girls who have babies. One-fifth of all babies today are born to single mothers. Some of her schoolmates bring their babies to school.
In some ways, Cassie is more informed about sex than I was. She's read books on puberty and sexuality and watched films at school. She's seen explicit movies and listened to hours of explicit music. But Cassie still hasn't heard answers to the questions she's most interested in. She hasn't had much help sorting out when to have sex, how to say no, or what a good sexual experience would entail. Cassie is as tongue-tied with boys she likes as I was, and she is even more confused about proper behavior. The values she learned at home and at church are at odds with the values broadcast by the media. She's been raised to love and value herself in a society where an enormous pornography industry reduces women to body parts. She's been taught by movies and television that sophisticated people are sexually free and spontaneous, and at the same time, she's been warned that casual sex can kill, and she's been raped. Cassie knows girls who had sex with boys they hardly knew. She knows a girl whose reason for having sex was to get it over with. Another classmate had sex because her two best girlfriends had had sex, and she didn't want to feel left out. More touching and sexual harassment happens in the halls of her school than did in the halls of mine. Girls are referred to as bitches, whores, and sluts. Cassie has been desensitized to violence. She's watched television specials on incest and sexual assaults and seen thousands of murders on screen. She's seen Fatal Attraction and Halloween too. Since Jeffrey Dahmer, she knows what necrophilia is. She wasn't traumatized by the diary of Anne Frank, as I was. Cassie can't walk alone after dark. Her family locks doors and bicycles. She carries mace in her purse and a whistle on her car keys. She doesn't speak to men she doesn't know. When she is late, her parents are immediately alarmed. Of course there were girls who were traumatized in the 50s, and there are girls who lead protected lives in the 1990s, but the proportions have changed significantly. We feel it in our bones. I am not claiming that our childhoods are representative of the childhoods of all other females in America. In some ways, Cassie and I both have had unusual childhoods. I grew up in a rural, isolated area with much less exposure to television than the average child of the times. My mother was a doctor instead of a homemaker. Compared to other girls, Cassie lives in a city that is safer than most and has a family with more money. Even with the rape, Cassie's situation is by no means a worst-case scenario. She lives in a middle-class environment, not an inner city. Her parents aren't psychotic, abusive, or drug-addicted. Also, I am not claiming that I lived in the good old days and that Cassie lives in the wicked present. I don't want to glorify or Donna Redify the 50s, which were not a golden age. They were the years of Joe McCarthy and Jim Crow. How things looked was more important than how things really were. There was a great deal of sexual, religious, and racial intolerance. Many families had shameful secrets, and if revealed, they led to public disgrace rather than community help. I left my town as soon as I could, and as an adult, I have been much happier in a larger, less structured environment. Many of my friends come from small towns, and particularly the smart women among them have horror stories of not fitting in. 
What I am claiming is that our stories have something to say about the way the world has stayed the same and the way it has changed for adolescent girls. We had it in common that our bodies changed and those causes and those changes caused us anxiety. With puberty, we both struggled to relate to girls and boys in new ways. We struggled to be attractive and to understand our own sexual urges. We were awkward around boys and hurt by girls. As we struggled to grow up and define ourselves as adults, we both distanced ourselves from our parents and felt some loneliness as a result. As we searched for identities, we grew confused and sad. Both of us had times when we were moody, secretive, inarticulate, and introspective. But while some of our experiences are similar, many are radically different. Cassie's community is a global one. Mine was a small town. Her parents were divorcing. Mine stayed together. She lives in a society more stratified by money and more driven by addictions. She's been exposed to more television, movies, and music. She lives in a more sexualized world. Things that shocked us in the 1950s make us yawn now. The world has changed from one in which people blushed at the term chicken breast to one in which a movie such as Pretty Woman is not embarrassing. We've gone from a world with no locks on the doors to one of bolt locks and handguns. The issues that I struggled with as a college student, when I should have sex, should I drink, smoke, or hang out with bad company, now must be considered in early adolescence. Neither the 1950s nor the 1990s offered us environments that totally met our needs. My childhood was structured and safe, but the costs of that security were limited tolerance of diversity, rigid rules about proper behavior, and lack of privacy. As one man from a small town said, I don't need to worry about running my own business because there are so many other people who are minding it for me. Although my community provided many surrogate parents and clear rules about right and wrong, this structure was often used to enforce rigid social class, rigid social and class codes, and to keep people in their place. Cassie lives in a town that's less rigid about rules and more supportive of autonomy, but she has little protected space. Cassie is freer in some ways than I was. She has more options, but ironically, in some ways, she is less free. She cannot move freely in the halls of her school because of security precautions. Everyone she meets is not part of a community of connected people. She can't walk alone looking at the Milky Way on a summer night. The ideal community would somehow be able to combine the sense of belonging that small towns offer with the freedom to be oneself that small towns sometimes inhibit. Utopia for teenage girls would be a place in which they are safe and free, able to grow and develop in an atmosphere of tolerance and diversity, and protected by adults who have their best interest at heart. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, 
You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.